Are we supposed to be doing the clapping thing? Did I do it right? All right, ready? Okay, let's go. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Joined this week, like so many weeks, pretty much all of them, by deputy editor at Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And senior writer, Liel Leibowitz. Chodesh Adar Samech Lekulam. All of those. And this week, we speak with scholar Ruth Weiss, who is famous for being a Yiddishist and for her book, Jews in Power, which has just been re-released, but also for her first book, my favorite title book in the whole world, 1971, Ruth Weiss's doctoral dissertation, The Schlemiel as Modern Hero, <laughs> a, a unimprovably titled book, and also a very readable book about the character of the Schlemiel in Yiddish literature. Our Gentile of the Week is Antonia Ellison. She is a democratic socialist in Mississippi. You heard that right. She's the sole democratic socialist in Mississippi. No, there's probably another. But only one of them is running for Congress. That's Antonia Ellison, our Gentile of the Week. And you know she's read the Schlemiel's Hero. <laughs> it's canon. It's pretty much a platform. J. Crew, if any of you has read the Schlemiel's Modern Hero by Ruth Weiss, please write in. Send us a review. That We need to bring that book back. Talk about a book that needs to be reissued. Before we get to what's up in your lives, this has been a big week for me. I got a haircut. And I've been watching High Fidelity. Which one do you want to talk about first, guys? I think the haircut. This is a really monumental haircut. <laughs> what you haven't said is that we are not together, but we are on the most monumental uh, Zoom video chat of all time. All time. And whatever, what is going on with your hair? It's like, it's like a new you. And tell us where you are. This is not like your basement. No, no, no. I am actually in my office that I share at one Yale University with former poet laureate Louise Glick, uh, who is not here in the spring. So I get Louise Glick's office. That's where I am. And today there's a little product in my hair because I'm teaching my class. It's Mondays and I like to look student friendly and student ready. But yes, I got a haircut and I went from being quite shaggy to being, well, let me put it this way. I was up in Springfield yesterday uh, visiting my parents. Rebecca and I were driving back. I pulled over at a rest stop on the Merritt, went inside, uh, was standing at a urinal and a 10 year old boy looked up at me and said, oh, you look like Clark Kent. We were like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Thank you, small child. That's right. And I was like, thanks, kid. You know, so it's, um, I've gone from being like Jim Croce or... Roadie number four for the Grateful Dead. Art Garfunkel on a bad week yeah. to Clark Kent. And in other news, and I realize this is a Jewish story, I've been watching the TV reboot of High Fidelity, starring, of course, Jewess Zoe Kravitz. Now, I'm assuming that both of you are fans of the book or the movie. Is that a safe assumption? Very big fan of both. This is when I tell you that I don't know anything about either, but like Polly will watch it because Zoe Kravitz is in it. <laughs> so Nick Hornby's, not his debut book, I believe his debut novel though, I think he'd already written Fever Pitch. The Jimmy Fallon movie? The Jimmy Fallon movie was transported to America and ruined in the screenplay. Nick Hornby's great novel, High Fidelity, made into a great movie with John Cusack, Jack Black, Todd Luiso, and... Lisa Bonet, who, of course, is Zoe Kravitz's mother as a key one-night stand. Oh, that's amazing. In the movie. So this is all like meta and lots of in-references. Now Zoe Kravitz is cast as the John Cusack character of the obsessive indie vinyl store owner who can't hold a relationship because her only real love is for the records, not for people. And what had been mixtapes has now become like Spotify playlist and a lot, you know, big updating over 20 years. Problem is, and Leo, you've watched a couple episodes, right? Sadly, I have. Problem is, and I mean, she's a good actress. The script is fairly tight. The problem is that the joke works in the original movie because John Cusack convincingly plays a true a social misfit. Yeah, like a schlemiel. Like he's just surrounded by his vinyl records and he can't form human relationships because his relationships are with The Cure and, you know, R.E.M. and The Beatles and, you know, The Replacements and whatever. 
Zoe Kravitz is not remotely persuasive as a misfit. Like she's always complaining, I can't get a date. And you're like, you are literally the most beautiful woman on the island of Manhattan. You are incredibly cool. Your tattoos are cool. Your hair is cool. You seem cool. Everyone, you are magnetic. And I'm as good an actor as she is. This is, you know, it's a little bit like Brad Pitt can play a little bit quirky, but he would not work in this, in the John Cusack role either. He's simply too handsome. You're saying if we're making the Schlemiel is hero as a movie, Brad Pitt is not the Schlemiel. And <laughs> Ruth, Ruth Weiss, Weiss adaptation of... Ruth Weiss would have known better than to cast Brad Pitt or Zoe Kravitz. What, what was your take, It's not just that. I, I completely agree with you. It's not just that, though. It's, it's also that... This is a whole like the nineties, like the, the 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 mainstream like social norm was people hang out with people. Like now, right. the mainstream norm is I'm gonna sit alone, like right. some kind of weird shut in, and like click on some screen. So like you're already that like recluse, icky person. Like totally. that's the whole culture. So like you're not weird in any way. You're just a millennial, you know. Plus, I'm sorry, no millennial ever listens to an entire album. Like, I don't think anyone born after 1983 has listened to an entire album. That's incorrect. I listened to Taylor Swift's Lover fully through, like, three times a week in one sitting. So, Stephanie, since you haven't seen the original High Fidelity movie, should, should I we do make it? it? Is this my next my next assignment? Could we make it the next assignment for the J. Crew since Keeping the Faith was a huge hit with our fans? Well, it's interesting because I wasn't here for the the Keeping the Faith convo. So like, I, I know. have all these thoughts, but I'll we, I can transport them to the High Fidelity convo. Well, actually, why don't we <laughs> in assigning High Fidelity to the original movie, and if you want the the reboot, but the original movie, in assigning it to the J. Crew and saying we'll talk about it in a couple weeks to come, let's say in two weeks. This is an opportunity to just backtrack a little bit and say, Stephanie, you did miss the convo about keeping the faith, but like on rewatching it, what were your feels? It's so interesting. Well, first of all, the most important thing about that movie, and I think I said this already, is that Cantor Frieder of my of my hometown synagogue, uh, Temple Israel of Great Neck, is the cantor in the movie. Like he was that good that he was like Hollywood level. I think it really spoke to me when I first saw it, and I was really young. Um, and it's 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 a real rewatchable. I mean, I'm surprised that the Ringer podcast rewatchable has not done this this movie yet. It really holds up. And I think, I don't know, it's so sweet. And I, they're all so young. And you're like, this is great. This is great for you guys. Does it make you think that Jenna Elfman should have had more of a career? She's so good. Actually, my career thoughts on that movie are different because like, I've always like very, very, very lightly flirted with the idea that I should be a rabbi. And so when I first saw that like Ben Stiller portrayal, I was like, I would be that kind of rabbi who like clashes with the board and tries to get people involved. And then I found out that rabbis do more than just like bar mitzvahs and uh, like a, a Saturday morning service. Right. It's not it's not all fun stuff. Cool rabbi, not a common uh, archetype in the culture. But we got this letter from Rabbi Benjamin Scharf. Dear Mark, Stephanie and Liel, in a recent episode, you all three mentioned your love of keeping the faith. That movie is very important to me. When it came out in 2000, I was dating a medical school student who was reluctant to be dating a rabbinic school student. She was worried our lives would be filled with nothing but traditional Judaism with no room for modernity. Seeing the depiction of Ben Stiller's Jacob Schramm helped open her eyes to the possibility that we rabbis can be fun, funny, and modern. Needless to say, we've been married 18 years now, and I still occasionally wear my black leather jacket. All the best to you and the J. Crew, Ben. Benjamin Scharf, Reform Temple of Rockland, Upper Nyack, New York. Also, I love that their names are pretty similar. I mean, this, <laughs> this is really great because this is the cool rabbi. We finally get to see the cool rabbi. It's time for a remake. Zoe Kravitz is a rabbi. Stephanie, what's up with you? I mean, not much. We haven't been traveling in a while, so I'm just like, I, I don't really know what to do with myself. I've been seeing, spending a lot of time with my cat, but my cat, you know, since people do seem to be somewhat interested, my cat is obsessed with Ben Cohen, my husband. Like, 
but in a bad way. Like he just like <laughs> he'll be totally calm when I'm home with him and Ben will walk in the door and he'll just be like all up in his business. And then like I've been posting these videos on Instagram where Ben sits on the couch with his laptop, which is his sort of like his stance every night. And the cat just starts sitting like standing at his feet and just meowing at him and then just like pouncing. So every night I put these videos up on Instagram and everyone is like, what is happening? This is terrifying. And so what grew out of that is basically my campaign to show realistic images of cats on Instagram, which is like not a cute little thing like purring in the corner, but like a jerk because cats are jerks. And that's why we love them. Standing on my computer while I'm home trying to work and then like kind of like slapping me. And there's like the sound of the slap. Stephanie, it is such a testament of Ben's love for you that that animal is still alive. I honestly think, though, Ben is, like, trying to win him over still. It's been four years, five years, but, like, Ben deeply wants this cat to like him. And so there's, like, something really beautiful about what's happening. But he's he's definitely obsessed with Ben in a way that he's not really that interested in me. Like, there's like I don't know what it is, but it's amazing and it's terrifying. As we say in Israel, cat only understand force. Cat no understand any other language, just the violence in the cat. Speaking of Israel, a little news of the Jews this week, uh, some quick hits. We'll start off with the fact that Quentin Tarantino has an Israeli baby. Mazel tov. Jewish Telegraphic Agency reports, director Quentin Tarantino and his Israeli wife, model and singer Daniela Pick, welcomed a baby boy in Tel Aviv. The couple's first child was born on Saturday afternoon and will be an Israeli citizen. No name has yet been announced, though reports say he will have a ritual circumcision and the couple could be waiting until then to make the name public. In November, they rented a home in an affluent neighborhood in northern Tel Aviv for nearly $23,000 a month. Whoa. Does that exist in Israel? Do they buy the whole country? Good Lord. No, no, that's in Tel Aviv. That's very possible. That's nothing. Really? Because the prices have been driven up by all of our elderly aunts buying pieds a terre. Yeah, for elderly aunts who are Russian oligarchs. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. None of my lovely aunts are Russian oligarchs. Tarantino, 56, and Pick, 20 years his junior, started dating in 2009 when the director was in Israel promoting his movie Inglorious Bastards. By the way, how amazing is it that like the ultimate revenge fantasy is like he kills off Hitler in his movie and then marries an Israeli woman and has Jewish babies. (laughs) Like This is the sequel we didn't know we needed. Um, The news of the Jews is really terrific this week. Uh, Jewish teen ping pong ace can't go to Olympic trials on the Sabbath. The New York Post reported that nationally ranked table tennis player Esty Ackerman from uh, Long Island made it all the way to the Olympic trials, but they're refusing to move the trials around and she there's going to be some rounds on Shabbos and so she can't go. Her father has contacted the table tennis organization about the four-day tournament in Santa Monica, California, and the tournament director was like, look, we just can't, we can't reschedule for your Jew holidays. We right. can't help your Jew daughter play Jew table tennis. And I mean, to be fair, you know, the world does go on, right? Like you can't, there's, there aren't that many of us and American secular ping pong society goes on. I, it's not anti-Semitic. It's just sad would be my take on that. Yeah, Mark, I, I totally hear you. And honestly, I, I sort of agree with that. But at the back of my mind, there's this like one doubt. Would any other minority in the same situation be treated this way or not? I, I can't provide any answers or examples or stuff like that. But there's kind of a part of me that thinks that it's a little bit too easy to dismiss, you know, Jewish religious concerns in a way that I don't know it would have been so cavalier. Maybe it would have been the same outcome, but maybe a different process for any other minority in America. I think Essie is such a badass. I've been actually following her career for some years. That's sort of the the pride and perils of being at a Jewish magazine for almost a decade. Um, she's amazing. And being and from so, Long Island. She's a Long Island of sister. Of course, of course. Seems to me some compromise could be reached. Esty's Olympic dreams should not end here. That's why she should play for Israel. 
Let's get her on the show. Esty, call us. Yeah, Esty, we're going we're gonna to find you. Esty should play all three of us. She's been in deep training. She doesn't have time for us. Uh, you know, I hope has time for us. Lady Kitty Spencer, Princess Diana's niece, who apparently, according to various British reports, is going to convert to Judaism. Uh, she's marrying a Jewish fashion tycoon more than twice her age, according to the Times of London. Lady Kitty Spencer, a 29-year-old model, got engaged to Michael Lewis, the 61-year-old chair of the Foschini Group, in December. Not the author, Michael Lewis. Not? <laughs> the, leaving Tabitha Soren, former MTV News VJ <laughs> for Princess Diana. How Diana's dare you? Niece. Don't even say that. Poo, poo, poo. <laughs> Kinahora. For a very specific subset of royal watchers who are Jewish, like this is like catnip. Like this is the perfect thing. It's sort of like how when Meghan Markle's first husband right. was Jewish. And right. it's, there was a whole thing of like, is Meghan Markle Jewish? Um, that was like a few days of, of speculation on the, on the Jewish internet. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care about this. I'll be perfectly honest honest. I just think that it's, I, I like to marvel at the fact that like this is the stuff of headlines. We don't really run this kind of blog at tablet anymore, but like there is a world in which this generates headlines for like at least three days. Right. I'm well on the record over the years. I've written about this royal watching, especially for an American proud citizen of a country that fought a war to get rid of royals and to not have to bow and shit before them. Royal watching for an American is sad to begin with. Amen. If you're going to watch, if you're going to be obsessed with them out of some sort of weird, deep anglophilic pathology, we want them to be the sort of like dysfunctional Church of England, like like drunken dysfunctional wasps. Like I don't want, I want there to be no Jews in the royal family. I want them to be this like fabulous train wreck of what right. happens through like centuries of of high church wasp right. Anglo inbreeding. You see, kids, that's why we fought a war. Right. The idea that we want them to kind of that we that we Jews sort of want to sneak in through marriage, through conversion, like uh-uh, no way. This is like, we will be off running Hollywood and the media and electing Bernie Sanders president or having Jared Kushner make peace or whatever we do in America where Jews get to Jew it up. We that That's our bag. The royal bag is being like stiff upper-lipped, gin and tonic, addled, extramarital affair-having weirdos. And I want nothing to do with that. Exactly. This, I think, might be your most controversial take yet or the one that's going to get you into the most trouble. And I look forward to it. But bring I do it. say that I don't think people watch- I sign watch... on wholeheartedly. <laughs> Thank you. Fine. You send your emails to Leela Mark. But I don't think people watch because they like want to be- I mean, there's a fascination we watch with and we watch from a distance, from an ocean away, um, understanding that this is not our culture, but just finding a fascination in the pomp and the pageantry. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you're inferring a lot of weird things onto people who just like to watch a pretty wedding. Fine. But then, like, it's not a Jewish wedding. Like, the, that's not the wedding we want to watch. We've seen enough Jewish weddings. We've been to Leonard's of Great Neck. I disagree. They do a great bat mitzvah. Um, the thing about the royal family over the years is that, like, it's basically become a reality show, right? Like, the all-day thing about William and Kate's wedding. We can watch it. There's no reason why we can't now see ourselves in that nope. world because they are they become so much a part of our world. So I, I think it's – I'm all for it. I love my Jewish Jewish relatives too much. I love the big Jewish family too much to wish any of us into that family. But all the sparkly things. Into the most useless family <laughs> on the face of this planet. You guys have no fun. <laughs> you know who's the only people who are worse than the British royal family? <laughs> who's that? The only Liel? people in Europe who are worse than the British royals are, of course, my beloved <laughs> Belgians. Oh, what's the latest? This this weekend celebrated the latest annual installment <laughs> of the Alst Jawohl, Herr Kommandant, the Alst Festival, which, of course, is a festival in which you march uh. 
This year, there have been brand new costumes. So in previous years, <laughs> there have only been like crazy anti-Semitic, huge puppets and people dressed up as uh, Orthodox Jews with like huge fists you know, of uh, dollars and gold coins. Fists of dollars hands, right. and gold coins and, and huge hook noses <laughs> running around looking like Der Sturmer caricatures. So that wasn't enough for our friends in Belgium. This year, they amended their costume so that the top part of the costume is still stereotypic hook nosed Jew. The bottom part of the costume is insect like. <laughs> so we are now money grubbing hook nosed bastards who are one part vermin. Uh, only in Belgium. This is just fantastic. The Jewish Prime Minister of Belgium, Sophie Willems, came out in a statement and said, even though Alst Carnival is much more than that, these facts detract from our values and reputation of our country. Gee, you think, Sophie? Is there a sadder person in the world? Is there a more difficult, tortured job to have than being the Jewish Prime Minister? Than being the Jewish Prime Minister of, of Belgium. Uh, and so since Belgium chose to completely ignore all of the entire world's pleas, including their own prime minister, and tempt their anti-Semitism, uh, we too should double down and honor them by calling them not only the child rape capital of the world, but also from this moment, hence, the child rape Nazi sympathizing capital of the world. Congratulations, Belgium. I have a question. I've never actually seen anything to substantiate the child rape capital of the world part. I want to lodge my discomfort with that idea. I think at this point, it's on Belgium to prove that it's not the child rape capital <laughs> of the world. I don't know. It's the kind because of thing also, you just said Also, by the way, in the Alst Parade, there were more than 15 people dressed in SS uniform walking around oh, town. God. And only two of them are potential heirs to the throne of England. What are the other costumes? This is what I don't understand. There was a crematorium smokestack. That was a very popular one. Wait, is it all Jewish costumes or are there like, is it like Mardi <laughs> No, there's, there's the Hamburglar, there's uh, <laughs> right. a couple, the, of, the, I don't know. The, the Hamburglar, the Hemgering. <laughs> and finally, in News of the Jews, we say goodbye to Larry Tesler. Copy, paste. We say goodbye to Larry Tesler. Copy, paste. We say goodbye to Larry Tesler. Larry Tesler was in fact the U.S. Silicon Valley pioneer who created Cut, copy, and paste. He was 74 years old. He made computers. What We, we can't imagine a world without Larry Tesler's. We, we think of it as intuitive. We think, oh, it must have been in the cosmos. No, no, there could have been no copy and paste. Generations of students cannot imagine homework without Larry Tesler's invention. <laughs> How can you go on Wikipedia and you know retrieve knowledge? Our producer, Josh, pointed out that this, like getting the email about the fact that the guy who who pioneered copy and paste was Jewish is like the ultimate Jewish email to send around being like, look what we got. We got, we got, we got copy paste. We invented that. We cured polio. We invented the atomic bomb. And also copy paste. And that cut one too. Control C, control V. We got it all. Control bracket to make the font bigger. That's the goyim. That was actually, that was a Mormon who did yeah, that one. Exactly. Control J-E-W. We'll miss you, Larry <laughs> Tesler. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. 
They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Ruth Weiss is a scholar of Yiddish literature and Jewish history. She was Harvard's first tenured professor of Yiddish studies. She wrote the book Jews in Power, which has just been re-released, but in my own heart, she will always be best loved for her first book with the amazing title, The Schlemiel as a Modern Hero. Ruth Weiss is a legend, and she sat down with our own Liel Leibowitz to talk Jews and power and other stuff recently. Have a listen. So if you hear a slight quiver in my voice right now, it is because I am speaking to one of, I don't know, maybe three people alive uh, who I admire deeply, truly, passionately. I'm a little bit nervous. This may come out in the course of this interview, but it gives me tremendous, tremendous pleasure to welcome to this here podcast, professor, writer, thinker, leader, Ruth Weiss. Hello. Hello. And, uh, if this were television, you would certainly see me blushing. Uh, well, you would see me blushing as well, because okay. this is a true privilege. And we're here to speak about a reprint uh, or a reissue of a, a truly incredible seminal book called Jews and Power. And I want to start this discussion with, I think, the first thing that you write about in your book. It's in the prologue. It's a story from Warsaw from 1939, and it involves a young Jewish boy being bullied by two German soldiers. And his mother, watching from the courtyard, says something like, come inside the courtyard and be a mensch. And you're right, I thought very poignantly, that what this mother was doing, rather than warn her son against his tormentors, 
she was warning him not to become like them. Tell us about how this reflects a certain attitude Jews have about power that has really kind of shaped us for millennia now. Well, this is one of the things that drove me to write this book because, of course, I grew up in Yiddish culture and uh, I grew up in that whole framework of ethics that it is our obligation to be a chosen people in the sense of living up to the contractual agreement we made with none other but uh, the (laughs) Lord of the universe. And in fact, Jews have taken that contract very, very seriously. And the trade-off was that we would do everything in our power to live up to our obligations, to God's charge to us. And in return... God would be the power that protected us. And I think that you see in the prophets that idea reflected. If you live up to God's charge, if you live up to the Ten Commandments and beyond and the code, then God will protect you. And if not, it's your fault. And under this vision, there really is very little room for real political power, right? Because power, as we know, corrupts and Sovereignty makes people do all sorts of dirty, unholy things. And so wouldn't we just be better off if we were the perpetually disempowered, ever-moral people? Well, that would be a corruption of what I think was intended. In other words, part of me and part of the book goes to great lengths to show what a strong civilization, what a self-reliant civilization grew out of that idea. The whole first part of the book that I cast in this beginning proves how amazing a people developed out of that because when you hold yourself responsible to that degree, you try to be as good as you possibly can. You try to do everything. In other words, you you know, you perfect every part of yourself. And I think that you can see the way Jewish civilization has proven itself in time. You can't say that this is a failed civilization. Quite to the contrary. My point is only that it also has this other consequence of leaving the power element to God. Now, that could work for as long as one actually deeply believed that God was the all-powerful in the sense of military conquest as well. In the modern period, when you see us beginning to understand that, in fact, what the Shoah says, it's not that God was silent as I feel it. God spoke mightily to me out of that horror. And what it says is, you're going to have to do it yourself. You're going to have to revisit this part of our contractual agreement. There's a way in which you are going to have to find it in yourselves to supply that missing element because, paradoxically enough, the better you are, the more you create, the more you do, the more you prove, the more people can see how magnificent you are, the more they will want to take what you build destroy what you have. And so you will have to create the power that is commensurate with all that you create. I think that that's what I came to see. And I think that that is a truism, not just for the Jews, that the more 
inventive you are, uh, the more successful you are, the more you will have to devote to protecting what you create. Otherwise, you will be taken over. Right. And, and also the insistence that these conversations or processes happen in the real world. I mean, it would have been quite easy for this contract that you mentioned between God and the Jews to exist in some ephemeral plane. Instead, there's an insistence that it happens in the territorial bounds of a very specific country here on earth, that all this chosenness happens in an actual sovereign state. Yes, it did. And it was a land which, uh, you know, which is extremely important. Our text is the Bible, and uh, the Bible has to do with many things. But of course, one of the things which is central to it is the land. It's the land that is promised to Abraham. It is the land that Moses brings the people out of Egypt to reach. It is the land that Joshua conquers. It is the land that is lost and then regained. It is the land, the land, the land. And so that is exactly right. That land represented something extremely important in the dynamics of the Jewish people. It's not that one lost it physically, but one never gave it up. I must say that uh, there are things that I formulated in the book that I'm not sure I formulated precisely enough, because I said that one of the things that Jews did when they went into exile was that they lived without land, without central political authority, and without means of self-defense. I think that that's true in a way, but I should have been more careful in saying that they lived without land. It's true that the main thing about Jews in exile was that they were without their land, they were outside their land, but they were never without it. Right. It was present in their daily prayers and their thoughts. And their yes, exactly. So it remained as central as God did to their conception of themselves as a people. I want to get back to this moment of exile, which again is a seminal moment in the first part of your book. You tell the story of how the temple came to be destroyed. And you have, it's a quite famous story about these two fighting Jews, surprise, surprise, Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa. And you tell the story, which is quite well-known story, but, but offer a, a sort of almost radically different interpretation. Can you take us back to that moment? Yes. In the year well, 70 in Jerusalem. Yes, the year 70 in Jerusalem. So the, the story of Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa is quite convoluted in a way. A, a host is hosting a party, a gathering, and he sends an invitation to the wrong person. And the person, Kamsa, gets the invitation and thinks that he's invited to the reception, turns up at the reception, and is treated very badly. So there is an altercation between these two people, and then the person who has been miffed and insulted then basically becomes a turncoat and turns against the Jewish people and informs on them. And so that leads to the downfall of the temple in this, um, I mean, this is a collapsed version of right. what it is. But the idea behind it is that gratuitous hatred among the Jews, between the Jews, is what led to the destruction of the temple. That's the part of the story that really I focus on. The moral of the story, as it's generally understood and as it's often been taught, is you see what caused the downfall of the temple? It was this gratuitous hatred, conflict, between Jew and Jew. Well, I look at that and I say, sorry, it's just not so. 
And my example for that is the United States of America. The United States of America had a civil war. That civil war we know was more damaging in many ways than any other war that America has ever fought. Horrible what one American did to another. And look at the outcome. Nobody ever says that the Civil War destroyed this country. In fact, Abraham Lincoln's willingness to fight and win that war is what made it possible for America to continue. Okay, one didn't improve as quickly as one should have, but nobody thinks that the war really destroyed the country. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is very clear. There were no enemies at the gate ready to take over America when it fought that civil war. And the reason that the Jews lost the temple and lost Jerusalem was not because of the internal friction between Jew and Jew. It was because that friction was taking place within a context of siege. And so my motto And one of the students in a seminar that I was once teaching (laughs) was making fun of me and uh, actually made a sign afterwards for me that really put my motto out there. I said that every Jewish home should have a sign that said, it was Rome. (laughs) 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 It was Rome. It was not Kamsa Bar Kamsa. It was wrong. Isn't it incredible, though? I mean, and, and, and this is sort of the point that, that you make in the book, that even this kind of most seminal moment of our downfall, the one that we decry in prayers daily, we find it very difficult, perhaps impossible, to blame the actual external perpetrators of violence against us. And instead, we have to turn it into some kind of internal Jewish moral conflict, the lesson of which is, well, we have to be better. The more we talk about this, the more you can see that there is a delicate balance to be achieved here, but it's a very difficult one. And the reason for the book is because the balance went so far in the opposite direction that you have in Eastern Europe especially, and perhaps in Western Europe as well, but Eastern Europe is what I would bring as my claim, in the form of that woman who wants her child to be a mensch, what you have is one of the most ethically developed communities the world has ever created, of such ethical refinement, of such magnificent internal communal self-restraint and dignity. It had, in Yiddish we would say, alamilis. It had all the virtues, but it did not have the virtue of having been able to defend itself. And the imbalance between its own self-perfection, what I call it solipsistic, involvement in its own ethicism, and the lack of attention to self-protection, the imbalance became so great that it became totally destructible. That the most obvious thing about Jewry in those five years of the beginning of the 1940s was its destructibility. And what a hoot that you could take this people that was so obviously successful in so many ways, that was such a model of everything, and whoops, just wipe it off the map. What a joy, what fun, what an achievement that is. So I think that what I'm trying to get at here is that you have to take into account your enemies who are very real, all too real. 
And you have to understand them. You have to know what drives them. You have to see why anti-Semitism succeeds. You have to see what they gain by it. You have to train yourself to take them very, very seriously. If we were having this conversation before I read your book, I would have said, I agree, which is why I'm very grateful that Zionism came along to change this thinking from one end to another. And yet, in the second part of your book, you argue that Zionism actually was, or I could say is, infected with a lot of the same symptoms. How so? Well, here is, I mean, I guess the most painful part of the book and the reality, because Zionism, I think, had two goals at least, two main goals. One goal was really the self-liberation of the Jewish people. Now look, that was an internal goal. It was not necessarily prompted by anti-Semitism or anything else. You know, in the 19th century, emerging nation states, emerging nationalism was a very strong force. You saw Italy coming into being. You saw Ireland wanting to come into being. Country after country comes into being. And in the 20th century, this continues. So what could be more natural than that the Jews say to themselves, yes, it's our time. We have to reclaim our land. And they do it. So Zionism's great, great triumph, I think that that is something that we have to understand. It's one of the greatest achievements that one could possibly imagine and that it came to pass, right? That the Jewish people reclaimed its sovereignty in the land of Israel that had been subject to other peoples for almost 2,000 years. Unbelievable. Zionism, a total success in that way. However, Zionism, as we know, also had another goal, and certainly that was very important to Herzl, and that was that he wanted to save liberalism. In other words, he saw that anti-Semitism was a real disease, and what he thought was that if you bring the Jews back to their homeland and normalize the Jewish condition, then that would eliminate anti-Jewishness. It would eliminate anti-Semitism and anything like that. Well, that was the huge surprise, that yes, you could bring Jews back, and Jews by dint of great energy and, and really unimaginable self-reliance reclaimed uh, their land. But lo and behold, it was even easier to organize aggression against the Jews in their land than it had been to organize aggression against the Jews outside their land. So one of the hypotheses was that the reason for anti-Semitism is that the Jews are dispersed. Well, this was disproven. It turns out that that was not one of the reasons that anti-Jewish politics was organized or worked. It didn't have anything to do with them being dispersed innately because now they're not dispersed. And yet, in the United Nations, for example, the organization of politics against the Jews is much more universal today than it ever was during the 2,000 years of Jewish dispersion. And the Jews themselves, as you argue uh, so heartbreakingly in the book, seem to still be tethered to a lot of these old ideas. You tell the story of Egyptian President Sadat's arrival in Israel, and you cite the thing Golda said to him. 
she said something like, uh, the one thing I will never forgive you is for making Israeli soldiers kill Egyptians, which is kind of a really fascinating way of restating that same sentiment that that mother in 1939 Warsaw said, right? It's, I will never forgive you for making us not be menschy. Yes. Which, again, given the presence of very real enemies seeking very real destruction, is this kind of, that you would look at it this way is, is, is almost testament that even all these years and all these successes of Zionism do not necessarily free you from the charge of the weight of thinking in this way about power. Yes, well, it's true. Now, you would not want the Jews to want to be any less moral than they actually are. So what you're leading to is not that you want Jews to be like their enemies. That's not the goal, certainly. Uh, You don't want them to stop feeling that it's wrong to kill others. You don't want them to stop longing for peaceful coexistence with neighbors and so on. But it was wrong of her, I think, to say that. And it's wrong of us to think that way because I want the Egyptians to be as moral as I am. I am not concerned with being moral in order to show them as being less moral than I am. I wouldn't mind if they were more moral than I am. And I want to hold them accountable for their morality. And I think it's time that we have to really begin to externalize that. If we're really good people, and if we really care about others, we can't care only about perfecting ourselves, or as Tikkun Olam would do it, you know, perfecting the world. I'm not interested in my perfecting the world. I'm interested in the <laughs> bastards who are really corrupting the world. I'm interested in their becoming more moral. And I cannot substitute my higher morality for their lack of it. You have to have it within yourself to make demands, particularly of your enemies. And I know how hard that is when one is a minority by choice, and one is a minority whose mode of existence is trying to accommodate to others. One is so used to that, because we are a minority by choice. We don't want to conquer them. So our only hope is to somehow get them to want to coexist with us. But the way of doing it is not to lie about their intentions. And as long as their intentions are to destroy us, I mean, you have to really insist that they have got to change. They have got to give this up. And whatever it takes to change their minds, whatever it is to make them more capable of coexistence, that's what one has to do, even if it comes to warfare. But if you speak well enough, and if you make those demands strongly enough, and if you find ways of squeezing them strongly enough, then sometimes you can get the job done short of warfare. You made this argument in the book originally when it was published in 2007. Yes. We are now 13 years down the line, and the book is being released with a new introduction, which makes it abundantly clear that not only have we not learned this lesson, we seem to be progressing even more rapidly down this path that says, well, you know, you have Israel now. Israel is almighty and powerful. And so it is an example of how corrupt the Jews have become with their infinite amount of power. 
we seem to have learned very little. Let me disagree slightly. Who are the we? I think that Israelis have learned a great deal. I think that uh, they have much less to learn from this book than American Jews. As you can see from the voting power... I mean, Israelis would be very happy to hear that because they... Their natural state of existence is thinking that they have nothing to learn from any book. So, <laughs> Well, I'm a tremendous fan of Israelis, I have to say, uh, in the aggregate, uh, what Israel is, and even, if you will forgive me, how it votes. Because um, I think for the time being, it has understood that the most trustworthy institution in the country is the Israel Defense Force. Every inquiry that is made comes to that conclusion. The armed forces, the military, is something that the country takes very seriously. As far as I know, there has been no major movement to resist the draft. A tremendous amount of the intelligence of the country is devoted to finding means of more and more effective self-protection and destroying tunnels, destroying the enemy, preemptively striking when necessary to destroy. So I think that Israelis, because they are in this existential situation, have really uh, understood that they cannot blithely believe that their internal friction is what causes enmity. I think they have come to believe that the enemies around them are real and uh, dangerous and that they will devote whatever energy it takes to protecting themselves against it. So I think that even psychologically, I think that even theologically, Israelis have begun to come to terms with the fact that for as long as Israel wants to exist, it is going to have to repel the enmity against it and reach out to any potential ally that it can get through strength. It is going to have to project strength in order to get allies who are interested in its strengths. So I see that at least a large part of Israel feels that way now, thinks that way more and more. It's not true, though, in America. And the tragedy here is that it's not just Jews in America who think this way, but Americans have come to think this way. I mean, I think that what I wrote in this book about the Jews is becoming truer about America than it ever was for the Jews. Americans, too, think that they can build and invent and be magnificent, and ever, but they don't have to defend themselves. They don't even have to think in those terms. They just have to think in terms of open borders and really projecting their goodness and, and beating their chest because of they were once slaves and because they were once slave owners and because they are so bad and because they took the land away from the Indians and because they are fractious and because they are... I mean, it's pathological now in the American polity. This, as you call it, moral solipsism. Exactly. And I find it degrading and corrupting and deeply disturbing because I, I think that it is a lack of accountability, really. It's just, you just don't want to take responsibility for wielding the power that you have in an ethical and moral way, which means creating, and it means really being strong, but it also means believing in your self-defense and believing in your own goodness to the extent that you are good. 
And believing, of course, again, that your enemies... Are real. Are real. Yes, exactly. Believing that they're real. And so how do we, say for making the book mandatory reading, which now is a very good time to tell all of our listeners it is, how do we shift the conversation? How do we shift it away from this guilt-ridden worldview that sees any instance of achieving and yielding power as necessarily morally reprehensible and that seeks to kind of dismantle all structures for the good of some universalist messianic vision? Sometimes it's a good idea to take books like this, if you take them seriously, and um, discuss them. Because I find that I think much better, really, dialectically. You know, when you find a novel of ideas, let alone a book of ideas, the best thing to do is really to discuss it with other people and to chew it up in that way and really to challenge it, too, on points that you don't think are expressed well enough or that are in any way persuasive. But among other things, I would say that the Holocaust emphasis of Jews in America has really been partly detrimental both to them and to the country. Understandably, the Holocaust was uh, such a horror and it was so unprecedented, so unimaginable, that you can see that people really still go back to this and say, look, we, we have to deal with it. And of course, for Jews, there's the impulse to mourn. If we are mourning the temple after so many centuries, we will mourn the Shoah forever. So the aspect of mourning is not to be given up. But I have felt from the beginning, one of my strongest points of differentiation with most of my fellow Jews has been over asking the United States to really uh, feature and learn about the Holocaust. I don't get it. I don't understand it. What do they mean by that? What is it about the Holocaust that they want taught? To me, the Holocaust is the success of anti-Semitism, and the failure of Jewish political strategy. Right. Now, if you teach it that way, I'm okay with yeah. it. And Te if you teach it that way, the conclusion to that story is God bless the strong sovereign state of Israel. Exactly. Because in that same decade of the 1940s, you had the destruction of the Jews in the first part of the 1940s, and then you had the greatest miracle I think ever recorded, greater than any that I know of in the Bible, and that is that in the same decade, the Jewish people recovered its sovereignty in the land of Israel. Where in human history do you find anything that remotely resembles that achievement? Right. So that is something that one wants to teach. Why did Jews not go into the heart of the United States into where the Holocaust Museum stands. And why didn't they, if they were going to tell that story, the first part of the story should be about what we say in the Passover Haggadah. We were slaves in the land of Egypt. This is what happened to us in Europe. Look at that. And then the second part of it, and the point of telling the first part, is to lead to the second part. Look at how we raised ourselves from that. Look at the infrastructure that was created beforehand. Look at how all that was set in motion so that even when that happened, we could reconstruct ourselves as a people. 
That is our story for America. And yet instead, the story that we're telling seems to be one about, well, isn't, isn't it horrible when people hate other people? And isn't it important for all of us to be nice to everyone? Yes, I, I would even go further. I think that the reason that the Holocaust story was told the way it was and is being told is because of Jesus. I think that for the Christians, the crucifixion is a story of redemption. And I think that that is very powerful. Obviously, there are many, many Christians who find this extremely powerful, right? The story of the sacrifice, if you will, of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, is a redemptive story. Now, here's what is so tragic about this. It is not a Jewish concept. Jews do not go to church and find Jesus on the cross as their symbol of redemption. So how is it that we now come and we tell the Holocaust story as if if you bring school children in to see this, it's going to be in some way redemptive to see this murdered civilization. It's not our idea. And I think that if we're going to go forward, we should go forward, we should take that story and change every Holocaust exhibit into the first part and the second part. And the second part is really how the state of Israel was created, how it gathered in its exiles, how it gathered in the broken people of the Holocaust, you know, how it reconstructed Jewish life, how it reconquered the Hebrew language and brought it back into spoken Hebrew. I mean, it's such an amazing story. It is so powerful. It is so alive. It is so true. And so by rejecting this powerful and lively narrative, have American Jews priding themselves for decades on their liberal bona fides, have they simply drifted off towards some kind of Protestant ethos that values a kind of universalist cosmopolitanism over their own sense of particular identity and belonging? I think that that is what has happened. And I think that um, one of the problems here is that, you see, you don't have to convert in America. You know, Heinrich Heine said that conversion was the ticket to European culture. Uh, and it was in uh, Germany and in Western Europe of his time. It's not any longer the ticket to anything in America. So people can, in a sense, internally convert and yet call themselves Jews. And then they redefine Judaism in terms of what they have become, which is really in many ways no longer Judaism at all. And they will say to you, you know, who are you to call us out? Who are you to say that we're not Jews? Well, Jews have been doing that over many years as well. You have a um, really searing sentence in the book in which you say one of the tragedies of Jewish history is that the Gentiles most frequently only knew those Jews who were deeply disloyal to other Jews and encouraged them for being disloyal to others. That's Jews. right, yes. And that is very much the case today. You see that with uh, organizations like J Street, right? where these are organizations which really take the anti-Jewish uh, position against the state of Israel 
and they say we have to see the other side and we have to press it in from the other side. Um, and they become really more and more popular. And of course, they are welcomed by part of the population that doesn't want to see the problem of Israel. So this is a good opportunity because I think a lot of people listening here may be intrigued uh, by by this conversation and hopefully will read the book, but will say something like, wait a moment, J Street, not to call in any one organization by name, but a, a lot of other liberal Jewish groups, they love Israel, but they criticize it. Is there anything wrong with doing that? Is there anything wrong with being pro-Israel and anti-occupation or thinking that if you truly cared about the Jewish and democratic nature of the state of Israel, you ought to support a peaceful resolution between Israel and the Palestinians, that that in of itself preclude uh, loyalty to Jews or, or care for the Jewish future? How would you respond to a question like that? Well, you respond to it by saying that it isn't criticism at all. Israel is not being criticized. It's subject to blame for the pathology of the Arabs. When you say criticism of Israel, we are all critical of certain parts of Israel. I mean, this is our nature is to be critical. But when I'm critical of you, I would only do it in the spirit of wanting really to improve you. But if I am criticizing you on the basis of what you're doing to the Palestinians, when the fact of the matter is that the Arab world has been waging a war against Israel, the longest war, I think, on record, certainly the most lopsided war in, ever fought, so that Israel is being blamed for the suffering of the Palestinians, which the Arabs have created. Now, Israel cannot do anything to alleviate the so-called suffering of the Palestinians. The suffering of the Palestinians is real. The suffering of the Palestinians is real as much as the poverty of the Germans in their time, as much as the suffering of the Poles in their time, and, and, and the suffering of every population, but that the Jews should be blamed for it and held responsible for it. It's not just wrong because the Jews are being wrongly blamed. It's wrong because it cannot be solved in that way. So to hold Israel responsible in that way is to perpetuate the problem and to perpetuate the suffering. So I would say the whole question or the pose of holding Israel accountable criticism is a lie through and through. One of the responses you would get here, of course, Israel is to blame because Israel is the most taking a pause here, powerful actor in the region right now. It is the party that acts on the Palestinians who are suffering and subjected to these military actions. Is this another example of how poorly we think of Jews in power? Well, it's how condescending we are to others. That's what it is. It's the deepest insult to others. I am not condescending to the Palestinian Arabs. I give them agency. They have the agency. If Jews had what the Palestinians have been given, do you know what they would be doing with it? Do you know what that part of their territory would look like today? It would be flourishing. And what about Jordan? I mean, Jordan is also Palestine. They got the lion's share of, of the land, after all. Why isn't Jordan welcoming them? and saying, hey, we, let's federate with you. You are our brethren. I mean, there's a huge Arab world. There's a Muslim civilization. 
I mean, where is that civilization? Why hasn't it been able to solve those problems? Is it because it's gotten involved with the same pathologies about power and Jews that the Jews themselves have gotten involved with? I think it is because people have not thought of what the war against the Jews gives the Arab world. When the Arab League organized in 1945, these were disparate countries that, as you can see, have not all that much in common and very many things pulling them apart. But if you wanted to use the word pan-Arab, pan-Arabism, or Islamism, or any term of that kind that draws them together, the one thing that could draw them together was a common opposition to the state of Israel. And that's why they have been using it. That's why it's at the center of Arab and Muslim thought for so many years. That has to be dislodged. They need this anti-Zionism. They need to foster it. And they have uh, exported it now into America as well, very successfully. I think this is a great danger for them because it is wrong to organize your politics in opposition to another people. You should organize your politics in terms of self-reform and self-advancement. It does them no favor to allow for that to continue. Anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, which I call the organization of politics against the Jews, is the greatest danger of all to those who engage in it. And it will destroy every society that really relies on it. And so I think that the favor that one can do to the Arabs is to tell them the first thing you have got to do is make peace in your mind with the idea of coexistence. Coexistence is the basis of existence. And so just accept it. Coexistence with the state of Israel, day one, and everything will be transformed from that point on. To lead to that coexistence, to, to the Jews, to the Christians, to the Muslims, we have one heck of a book to recommend. Ruth Weiss, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Liel Leibowitz talking with the formidable Ruth Weiss. Here is a great one. Hi, all. I just wanted to say that I appreciate your podcast. My partner is Jewish, Reform, and I grew up Christian. He and I are getting married. I'm not converting yet or at all. I don't know. Only time will tell. We are having a Jewish wedding, ketubah, rabbi, etc. We will raise our kids Jewish and have a Jewish home. But I have no clue what that means. When I try to talk to my partner about Judaism and ask what is important to him about Judaism, he doesn't seem to have much to say. I asked why he doesn't wear a kippah. He said it's because he doesn't wear hats. Insert eye roll here. (laughs) When we say we are committed to having a Jewish home, I'm unclear as to what that means for him. All I know is that he wants our future kids to have a bar and bat mitzvah. But for me, if we say we're going to have a Jewish home, then that means going to temple and building a community for ourselves and our future children. I plan to email the rabbi so I can meet again with her to get some guidance. But I was wondering if you or your listeners have a working definition of what having a Jewish home means. Sorry for the long-winded email. Best, Zoe. I will say, you know, I hear a lot, and it's usually men who are Jewish who are marrying women who are not, and they say, like, it's important to my mother that you're Jewish, or it's important to me that we're, that you're Jewish. I would probably venture to, to guess that 
60% of them have no working definition of what that means and don't right. want to do it themselves. I love how just, the burden the burden falls to the woman. Like you always, figure it out. Always. And then <laughs> and then this a woman will convert and then it and then a lot of that burden is put on her as it is right. in most, you know, heterosexual partnerships where the woman is responsible for all of this home stuff. So yeah, I mean, I feel your pain. It's it's kind of bullshit. Honestly, it's kind of bullshit to say like we need to have a Jewish home, but I couldn't tell you what that is. Yeah, I mean, First of all, I would say, like, they need to have more conversations. I mean, the communication, communication, communication. Don't kick this one down the don't don't kick this can down the road. You need to be talking about it now and before you go to your chuppah and sign your ketubah. Um, I was talking with my daughter Rebecca in the car about this yesterday and we had a wonderful conversation. And we basically agreed, I think this was this was her idea. I think we worked it out together, but she was the one who put a a a, a fine point on it that um he needs to figure out what he wants to do and what she can say is anything you do. I will learn and do with you or do whenever you can't, right? So if you start lighting candles Friday night, I will learn it. I will do it with you. And if you're not home on Friday night, I will be the one to do it. But he has to figure out what it means. And then she can be super game and super willing to like join him in every step of his journey. But he can't leave it to her to figure. I mean, that's just what she can offer is her is being game, is being willing. I wrote to a bunch of Jewish friends who think pretty deeply about these things. And uh, one of them, our friend Batsheva Marcus, the uh, sex therapist who works with the Orthodox community a lot, wrote back and said, to me, having a Jewish home means that time and space are imbued with Judaism and Jewish values, whether that's acknowledging Shabbat and holidays by lighting candles and saying Kiddush or just having a family dinner or going off electronics for some hours or going to synagogue. It doesn't matter as long as you've decided together how to approach this. Then she added, I also think it means building in some regular and shared learning and discussion about Judaism, whether it's reading a Jewish book listening and discussing issues raised by a Jewish podcast, reading PJ library books, discussing news from Israel, whatever, as long as there's some discussions. And here I'll just I'll just conclude by saying like it's funny when you're first building a family culture, especially before you have kids when you're first married, it can be kind of awkward to say like okay, here we are, husband and wife playing house, shall we light candles just the two of us? You know, shall we Shall we discuss the weekly Parsha for just 30 seconds because it's Friday night? Should we look for a synagogue? Like we sort of count on the arrival of kids and pressure from relatives to force us to make these decisions that we might be ironic about right. on our own. But by then it's too late. And like, honestly, have the courage to say, what are the two of us going to do? I agree 100%. I think the built-in challenge with waiting until kids come by is that by then everything feels kind of like like an awkward construct. I mean, the question that you need to figure out right here and right now, and Bacheva Marcus, not for the first time, not for the last, said, you know, what what I think only way more eloquently, uh, figure out what actually matters to you and then invest it. A Jewish home is a home in which Jewish things are done, whether it's Jewish spaces, Jewish rituals, Jewish learning, any kind of thing, as long as it's truly and innately meaningful to you, as long as it's something that you find so much joy and meaning in, in engaging in. And once you do, start that right now. Do not right. wait until you have children. Or even to your wedding. Exactly if you're shacking right. up, start it right now. Exactly right. And I, I do want to say, you know, there's a lot of like hand-wringing in this community about intermarriage, but I actually really admire intermarried couples because at the time of your wedding, you know, in the lead up to that, you have to decide what is it that you're you're willing to negotiate on? What is it that you really want to be part of your life? And so there's a way in which that upfront conversation really, really helps to set up a life. Even if there's a home right. with two faiths, you know what it is that's important to you. And I think that we should be celebrating that. Amen. This is one that Jay Crew must have thoughts on. Her husband says, I want a Jewish home, but he won't tell her what that means. Jay Crew, call us, 914-570-4869.
Our Gentile of the Week is Antonia Ellison. She teaches law at the University of Mississippi, but also she is a self-described democratic socialist who is running for Congress in the very red state of Mississippi. She's trying to unseat Republican Congressman Trent Kelly, and we talked to her about her campaign, about being a democratic socialist in Mississippi, and about her love for the Jews. Have a listen to our Gentile of the Week. Our Gentile of the Week is Antonia Ellison. She's a law professor and environmental justice advocate currently running for the U.S. House of Representatives, Mississippi District 1, as a Democratic Socialist. Welcome, Antonia. Thank you so much for having me. So first, I said you are our Gentile of the Week, and we need to just get some like paperwork out of the way. We keep asking people to come on this show thinking that they're not Jewish. And it turns out they're like halfway through the interview, they say they're like 78% Jewish right. according to a DNA test. I'm not Jewish, but my mother and grandmother are. <laughs> right. So can you confirm for us right now? Yes, much to my mother's great disappointment. In fact, I don't think she's ever been more disappointed than when she had the DNA test and it came back that she is not at all Jewish. Now, of course, it could mean she's part Sephardic Jewish because really it only measures Ashkenazi. But um, as far as we know... No one in the family is Jewish, and it truly has been a big disappointment because our family has been very philo-Semitic for most of its history, and everyone has at various points sort of tried to claim that we were Jewish, but we're not. Well, if you'd like to join, we could talk afterwards. (laughs) Yeah, that's a different interview. Right. (laughs) So we hear this word democratic socialist a lot lately. Um, I don't know that everyone necessarily knows what it is. I honestly think that I don't entirely understand what that term means. So can you just explain it to us, like professor this for us so we understand? So the way I'm trying to pitch democratic socialism is really, it's something we've already had in America. When you look at um, FDR's New Deal, That's democratic socialism. When you look at the idea that workers have more of a representation in their jobs, that's the idea of democratic socialism. And honestly, in the United States, we had quite a lot of democratic socialism until really Nixon, and then I would say it accelerated with Ronald Reagan that democratic socialism went away. So it's not necessarily a new concept for Americans. Um, I think the word has become very loaded. So it's a question of trying to take back the word effectively and reclaim it for the positive that it is. And I think a lot of people think of democratic socialism and you think of places like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, you know, places with strong social welfare programs, but that also have a lot of opportunities for people to work with dignity. Now, forgive me if I'm being rude, but I don't assume that this is uh, very much of an easy sail in the great state of Mississippi. It's not. Um, I think in Mississippi, though, you see a lot more progressives than people think there are. And I think for a state that's so poor, you know, compared to most other states, the message of democratic socialism really has the possibility of resonating with a lot of people. I mean, when you talk about things like Medicare for all, um, a Green New Deal, programs that would bring jobs and would also help people's livelihoods. Um, everyone I've spoken to, one of their biggest concerns is the cost of health care. And I think for most Americans, that's a huge concern. So I think, you know, it may not resonate now, but we're trying to build a movement and hopefully, you know, change the face of Mississippi and also show the rest of the country that we are not necessarily what people sort of stereotype us as being. I love that answer, but yours is still very much an uphill battle. I want to know emotionally, 
what's that like? You know, to go out there and do what I can only assume is an absolutely grueling day's work to campaign for what you believe in, knowing that, you know, being elected is very far from a sure shot. In fact, it's a very long shot. What's that like for you? You know, you need to have one part idealism that drives you. Another part is the professor side of me, which is, you know, the idea that we want to educate people But it's also the young people that are around me. I mean, my campaign managers are two undergrads and they are amazing. (laughs) And, you know, the people who've been driving this are all much younger than me. And I'm not even 40 yet, so I don't consider myself that old. But in comparison with sort of the energy that's on the ground, I'm seeing such an upswell of young energy that I think that's what's fueling this whole process. And if we leave Mississippi a place where future progressive candidates can run and make more inroads, maybe at the local level as well, then I will have succeeded. So when you hear so much of the mainstream all around, mainstream Democratic Party, mainstream media say things like, you know what the problem is? The problem is those Democratic Socialists. What we need is a good middle-of-the-road candidate that reflects what the majority of Americans think. We don't want these crazy radicals who want to impose socialism on us. What do you say to that? I mean, we have been running right of center candidates in Mississippi for as long as people can remember. We've been running moderates for as long as people can remember, and the Democrats never win. The tried and true strategy of trying to appeal across the aisle and particularly trying to appeal to a mythical Trump voter that's going to come over and vote Democrat, it's been proven that that doesn't work. It's time to try something new. The same old, same old isn't having any positive results. Which brings us to one Bernard Sanders. (laughs) Bernard Shlomo Bencion Chaim Yaakov Sanders. Uh, Thoughts, opinions, likes, dislikes? I mean, I am um, endorsing Bernie Sanders as candidate for president. Um, He is a large part of the reason that I'm running. I'm one of those people that in 2016 found myself motivated by hearing an old man talk in ways that um, inspired me and excited me. And I'd never felt that in American politics. Was it his Brooklyn accent? Yes, I was about to say. It is. It is. You mean shouting, right? I mean, yeah. And I'm a professor. And I mean, if you could see me, you would see I talk with my hands and I shout a lot. So um, (laughs) like I I naturally channel Bernie, I think. Well, we've been sort of noticing as Bernard has has risen and his his campaign has really been surging, this go round is a lot of discomfort among some types of Jews about about him and about his his political ideas. I know you're not Jewish, but you basically are, right? Like in spirit. Um, I am. And you took a semester of Yiddish in college, which I read is... I, mean, I did. I also took a semester of rabbinical literature, my first semester of college. Wow. Um, and so <laughs> can you... I know this is not really your expertise necessarily, but can you try to explain that? I mean, from the outside, what that looks like to you, what you, how you understand it? So um, I studied Polish-Jewish history and Polish history. I did a study abroad um, with the amazing Professor Tzvi Gittleman from University of Michigan, and he's the reason I'm a law professor today. But anyway... We learned a lot about the Bund. We learned a lot about, you know, the the sort of secular socialist movements in um, Poland and in what is today Ukraine and in Russia. And I think that that sort of conflicts a lot, I think, with the the sort of more mainstream, maybe Zionism of, you know, that came about with Theodore Herzl and all of that, that that in a way there might be some concern about Bernie Sanders being sort of in that vein of a more Bund kind of character. Um, I get that he doesn't really embrace his Judaism in, in a 
very strong way or really in any way at all, which is interesting because I think to a lot of non-Jews, right, he is especially, I think, anti-Semitic non-Jews. He is almost like a caricature of Judaism, right? When you go out there and, and talk to people in Mississippi, I'm sure his name comes up once or twice. Do you hear any of that? Do you hear people saying, well, I don't like this Jew. This is my Mississippi accent, by the way. It's do offensive. You, I don't like this Jew running and trying to tell us what to do here in America. Do you hear any of that? Or is that just in our minds? You know, I think people don't like Democrats a lot of times. People don't, you know, I think, I think it's broader than like, oh, he's Jewish or not. I mean, Mike Bloomberg is doing phenomenally because he's pouring money into Mississippi. And, you know, nobody's going on about Mike Bloomberg being Jewish. So I think that in Mississippi, it is for some Democrats, Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat, right? There's always that line that he was an independent. He's, you know, democratic socialist. He's not really a Democrat. And it's interesting because you don't hear the same thing as much about Mike Bloomberg, who literally was a Republican and then was an independent until 2018. So I don't think Bernie Sanders' Judaism and whether he's perceived as Jewish or not have much of an impact. Um, And if it does, the anti-Semites aren't telling me. So as a Democrat who, again, spends her her days doing these kinds of political activities in a very deep red state, do you have any lessons or insights for the party at large on how to talk to Republicans? The issues that plague Republicans, particularly in the deep south and in rural areas, are the same issues that Democrats and particularly Democratic socialists are fighting for. I mean, health insurance, medical debt is the number one source of personal bankruptcy, and most people declaring personal bankruptcy had some form of medical insurance. Those kinds of issues are ones that that cross all political boundaries. There's nothing loaded or political in the notion that people get sick, and when you get sick, you shouldn't lose your house and your car. I happen to agree with what you're saying, and yet I, I wonder what your response is to the question, well, if that's the case, how do you explain that so few of the policy proposals to these problems that Democrats and Democratic Socialists have come up with managed to sway these voters who you would think would be the most attuned to these kinds of solutions? I mean, I think there is an ideological divide, and I think it's very difficult to bridge that during the Trump era because there is a sort of cult of personality going on, right? Nothing that the current president does can be viewed as in any way harmful. So in light of that, I think we need to think of different ways to to rebuild any kind of communication with the other side. Um, One thing that I'm planning to do a lot of going forward is cookouts because I love to cook and I feel that the way to people's hearts is through their stomach. And I'm going to try to apply that to politics as well. And maybe if I feed people, they will think differently about issues. I mean, we have to start thinking outside of the box. So Cholent for everyone in Mississippi. Exactly, exactly. So (laughs) speaking of communicating with the other side, you came to us with an amazing Gentile of the Week question. Will you uh, share it with us? Yes, I've always been fascinated by Tisha B'Av. And one thing I've been wondering is how the observance of Tisha B'Av has changed over the centuries. And particularly, how has its meaning changed after the Second World War? Because I tend to think of it as a fast day that's very much shaped by the diaspora and by the events of the diaspora. And I know it's about the destruction of the temples, but in comparison with Yom Kippur, which is about personal atonement um, and very kind of personal, um, Tisha B'Av seems to be really about grief. So I guess, how has it changed perhaps from the 4th century to the 17th century to after the Holocaust? Obviously, y'all don't know what it was like in the 4th century. Oh, I remember. I remember (laughs) it well. 
sitting sitting with Raban Gamliel. Th- that is a fantastic question, and you know, as you can imagine, it, it has changed quite a bit. Growing up in Israel, that day for us was sort of rife with meaning, particularly in light of the Holocaust. It was spent discussing the destructions of the temple and reading the Book of Lamentations and, and doing all the kind of ritualistic fasting, of course, and doing all the ritualistic things that you're supposed to do on this day. But there was also increasingly, I, I feel, as uh, the, the older I got, increasingly the day was sort of permeated by by talk of the Holocaust, which was seen almost inevitably, right, as the, as the most proximate destruction uh, for us to contemplate. I know that in American summer camps, quite frequently, the day is spent watching Operation Thunderball Great and commemorating the slightly more cheerful, happy ending disaster of the kidnapping of an airplane filled with Israeli and Jewish passengers. So it's definitely uh, has become this kind of opportunity to reflect on more recent disasters to the extent that several modern Orthodox rabbis in Israel have said, you know, I think we need to make this official. I think we actually need to weave in the Holocaust uh, into the text, not just the tub- subtext of the day. I also think that there's a way in which, as people are struggling in 2020 and 5780 to make Judaism more relevant to their lives, a lot of people don't connect at all with the idea of the Second Temple. They don't even know that it's the Second Temple because it's so far away. And obviously, it's a foundational part of the Jewish story, of Jewish history. But that's that's like a hard sell to a lot of people, right? Like either you're a kid at Jewish summer camp crying and wearing white and sweating, or you're sort of an adult and you don't really understand what this holiday is. So I think what a lot of people are doing in so many ways with Judaism, and I think it extends to Tisha B'Av as well, is sort of trying to make this relevant to their own lives. So yes, of course, the Holocaust, but also like personal losses almost. There's a push to make this more personal than than the destruction of the temples. Interesting. Um, and I, I appreciate your, your Tisha B'Av observance. But I have to say, this is the most Jewish uh, Gentile the week question. I gotta tell you, on, on, a, on a very personal note of commemoration, last summer I was invited to this conference in England, and through the good graces of the hosts, was flown in one of these seats, which on Virgin means that basically there's a gentleman coming by offering you post-prendials and candy and all kinds of, you know, super luxurious. Is this your personal Tishabov? I flew on Tishabov. Oh, no. The guy walks by. is like, would you like some cognac? I was like, nope. Like, would you like some mints? Nope. Would you like this fantastic meal? It's like, nope, I would not. I would like to sit here hungry and uh, lament the temple, please. <laughs> so there. Sacrifice is real. <laughs> Antonia Ellison, thank you so much. Where can we follow along with your campaign and cheer you on? So we have a Twitter account. It is Antonia, the number four, MS1. We have the same handle on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, our website should be going live very soon, and that's Antonia2020.com. And um, we have an Act Blue account, and we very much appreciate donations. But thank you so much for having me, and I'm so happy I got to talk a little bit about democratic socialism. Good luck on the campaign trail uh, and, and with Bernard. Yes, thank you. Antonia 2020, thank you so much. Thank you. Mazel tops. Stephanie, you have a Mazel Tov this week? From a listener, this Mazel Tov is to Shira Nadel and her husband Jason on the birth of their son, Leo Bernard Schifrin, Hebrew name Boaz. Boaz. Welcome, Bobo. Can't <laughs> wait to meet you. Uh, Bobo. Liel, have you a Mazel Tov or two? 
Oh, I do. My Mazel Tov this week goes out to Josh and Chava on their incredible new podcast, Star Trek and the Jews. Available now on iTunes, coming soon to other platforms. Josh's wife, Leah, says, even though I'm married to a host and good friends with the other, this is an objectively good podcast. I'm not that into Star Trek, but I'm pretty into being a Jew, and I find the conversation fascinating. If you... Cough, Liel, cough, or any of your listeners are looking for a newish Jewish podcast, definitely check this one out. So I have, and I think it's great, guys, Star Trek and the Jews, it's all kinds of good nerdy muzzle to you guys. I am very worried that you're going to leave us for Star Trek and the Jews, Liel. That's, that's... I will beam up just in time back to the mothership. <laughs> I have... Uh... Two Mazel Tovs, or a Mazel Tov and a kind of shout out, a, a commemorative shout out. The first is to Bubby Brew. This comes in from a listener, Beruria Cooperman, known as Bubby Brew, has finished her book, For This I Survived, Children of Survivors Beyond the Trauma, <laughs> which she finished while still somehow managing to make Shabbat, take care of Zadie and Izzy the dog, create art and keep everyone entertained. Lots of love from your grandkids, Ella, Jackie, Ava, Adam, Nate, Ethan, Zachary, and Hannah. Bobby Baruria, Mazel Tov. Best book title ever. And then finally, a little one of my own. I missed this when it happened. Um, my late grandfather, Walter, his his hero, his cultural hero, was the great violinist, perhaps the greatest of all time, Yasha Heifetz, uh, child prodigy. Pretty much my grandfather's generation was born in 1901. My grandfather was born uh, 1910. And uh, my grandfather would occasionally give me and my siblings um, like a $10 or $20 bill. And we'd say, what's this for? And he'd say, in honor of Yasha Heifetz's birthday. And it could be any time of the year. It could be June. It could be September. We, I don't think he knew when Yasha Heifetz's birthday was, but we called it Yasha Heifetz money. If you came away with a 10 spot from grandpa, it was Yasha Heifetz money. And this year I thought, I'm going to give my kids some money actually on Yasha Heifetz's birthday. It was February 2nd. Um, he would have been 119. And I gave each of my kids $5 and I said for Yasha Heifetz's birthday. And I made them go look up who Yasha Heifetz was. So that's just, you know, the great, the great chamber quartet in the sky. I hope that Yasha Heifetz is playing with them. Amen. One more Mazalto for me. Friend of mine, friend of the show, friend of all Jews, Grant Silverstein, is running for the World Zionist Congress election on the Call Israel platform. So if you're inclined to pay $7.5 to have a say about the future of the Jewish people and you don't know who to vote for, I think your man is Grant Silverstein on the Call Israel slate. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and subscribe to our newsletter. It is written by one Liel, Bencion, Shlomo, Kevin, Lisa, Leibowitz. You can subscribe to that newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. If you're interested in advertising with the show, well, we'd love to hear about it. Email producer Josh Cross at jkross at tabletmag.com. If you want to wear or carry unorthodox stuff, if you want the swag, maybe you're doing some Purim shopping, maybe some early Shavuos shopping, Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, onesies, and other gear. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. The executive editor of Tablet Magazine is Wayne Hoffman. His boss and the boss of us all is the editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Amy Walk Katz and cantor Elise Barber of Temple Beth El in Springfield, Massachusetts who did such a gorgeous job with a very, very sad funeral this past Sunday. We come to you from Argo Studios, which wears one of those funny face masks every time it goes on an airplane. Shalom, friends.
It's later, later. Later, later, later. Later, later. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. Good luck with her.